Years ago, I had lunch along with a half a dozen others with a famous speaker. This is someone who each year spoke perhaps 200 or more times to thousands of people in dozens of states. During lunch, we asked him lots of questions, questions that we thought might help us to become better communicators. One person asked him, where do you get your ideas? Someone else asked him, how do you prepare? And then someone said, what's the most important question that we need to ask before we speak? Well, he paused for a moment and then he said, well, he said, a good speaker will ask, what do you want me to talk about? But a great speaker will ask, who is my audience? And then he went on to say, you can have the greatest content in the world, but if you can't make it accessible to your audience, no matter how sophisticated or how simple, you will fail. I was reminded of his advice this week as I read the story that we're looking at today. From the text, it's clear that Paul asked the very question that this man posed, who is my audience? Because in this story, Paul talks to three different groups of people, and in each case, he tailors what he has to say to the needs of each group. The story takes place in Athens, a city that for 500 years had been the most important city in Greece. Even after Augustus defeated Cleopatra, and took control of the city, it retained its reputation as the greatest intellectual city in the ancient world. The city of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle took great pride in its rich philosophical tradition, in its unmatched contributions to literature and the arts, and also its contributions to political theory. My guess is that Paul was excited to arrive in Athens. You see, Paul was an intellectual, and while he'd been trained in Jewish schools, he had read the classics, and he'd longed hoped to visit this great city. What he experienced when he walked into town wasn't really a surprise, but that didn't mean that he liked what he saw. Luke tells us that he was greatly distressed. Why? Well, because the city was full of idols. Now, when Paul used the word idol, he meant something different than the way that we use the word idol today. So we will say that our idol might be J-Lo or Bill Gates or LeBron James. And when we say that, we're simply saying that this is someone that we admire. But Paul meant something different, something more concrete and fundamental. You see, Athens was filled with the statues of various gods, images that people used as objects of worship. An idol is a substitute for God. It could be a person, a place, a thing. It could be fame or wealth or power. It could be a relationship or work or children or food or sports or even being entertained. It's anything that takes the place of God at the center of our lives. You can tell something has become an idol if your happiness depends on it. So if you say, I have to have X, Y, or Z in order to be happy, then X, Y, or Z is probably an idol. Or conversely, if you say to yourself, if I lost X, Y, or Z, which could be a boyfriend, a house, a job, or a bank account, then I would be unhappy, then probably X, Y, or Z has become an idol. Athens was jammed with idols. It was swamped by them, smothered in them. A journey through the city was like walking through a forest of idols. There were more idols in Athens than in the rest of the country combined. One visitor to Athens said it was easier to find a god in the city than to find a man. There were images of Apollo and Ju Jupiter and Venus and Mercury and Diana scattered throughout the city. Many of these statues were beautiful, but Paul was not impressed because all he saw was that the people in this city had allowed these idols to take the rightful place that God should have taken at the center of their lives, in their hearts, and it distressed him. 
First, because he knew that only the one true God should have that place in the human heart. And also because he knew that idol worship was doing them great harm. Paul was motivated as much by anything, by compassion. Compassion that flowed out of his love for the people of Athens. He knew that if they had a relationship with God, they would have peace and meaning and purpose. They would have guidance and strength to face the difficulties and hope for eternity that they did not have without a relationship with God. So when he met someone headed down what he thought was the wrong path, whether following the idols of Athens or the love of money, sex, or power, Paul was grieved that he had been deceived by teachers who did not have their best interests in mind. So Paul did something about it. It says that he reasoned with them. He turned his frustration into something other than unconstructive. Rather, he turned it into constructive action. Rather than wring his hands and criticize, Paul tried to persuade. He tried to convince them to turn from the aisles to the good news of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that Paul met with three different groups in that city, in three different places. And first, he went to the synagogue. If you've been with us in earlier weeks, we know that that was Paul's pattern, to go first to the synagogue, because he knew there he'd find the most receptive audience. It was made up of typically Jews and a few Greeks who were also people that they called God-fearers. Today, this would be like speaking in a church, because you're likely to find people who are already predisposed to be receptive to a message about Jesus. Even if maybe someone there hasn't yet made a commitment to follow Jesus, they're at least interested enough to be there. He also went to a place called the Agora, or the marketplace, a kind of farmer's market on steroids, where there were a, a complete cross-section of people from the city. Today, this would be like hanging out in a coffee shop, pre-COVID, of course, where people from all walks of life, from blue-collar types to middle management, even to executives, hang out to gather and talk. And finally, he went to the Eric Pagas, or Mars Hill. This is a place where the intellectuals in the community gathered to talk about ideas. This would be maybe the equivalent of a modern university, where people who loved ideas hang out. This group was small. It was just 30 people. You had to be selected. They were the brightest and most accomplished academics in the city. And they invited Paul to speak to them there. So Paul, when he reasoned, what did he talk about? Well, in each one of these settings, it varied. He took a different approach with the Jews than he took with the, the Greek God-fearers, than he did with the folks in the marketplace, than he did with the intellectuals who were gathered on Mars Hill. The conversation that Paul tells us about here is the one he had with the university types. And he approaches them in an interesting way. Now, first I want to mention one thing, and that is it's important to mention that while he varied his approach, depending on the audience, he didn't vary his message. No matter who he talked to, Paul preached Jesus. He told his audiences about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how we can have a relationship with him that comes through faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But to get his message across, Paul always tried to bridge from what people believed or the questions they had to the good news of Jesus that Paul wanted them to hear. Now, it's clear from what Paul said that day that he knew his audience well. Luke tells us that there were two philosophical groups gathered on Mars Hill that day, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And if those terms seem familiar to you, it's because we occasionally use them today. And when we use them today, when we talk about an Epicurean, we're talking about someone who's devoted to sensual enjoyment, particularly the pleasure of fine food and drink. The Stoics are people we think of today who endure pain or hardship without complaining. 
But there was more to the Epicureans, much more, and the Stoics in Paul's day than there perhaps is in ours. And they weren't at all on the same page. They disagreed on some fundamental questions. And in Paul's talk that day, he took into account what both groups believed in order to try to make the message of Jesus as attractive as he possibly could. He took what he knew of their beliefs and showed how Christian faith pointed them to a better, more satisfying resolution of the questions that they had. Paul started by pointing to one of the statues that was in the city, one with an inscription that read, to an unknown God. Now, we don't know exactly where that statue came from, but here's a plausible explanation. About 600 years before Paul was in the city, there had been a pandemic, a pandemic that swept through the community, killing perhaps 75 to 100,000 people. In a city with literally thousands of gods, most of them known, some of them people had forgotten, someone decided to put up a statue to an unknown god just to cover their bases, to make sure that if there was a god they didn't know about, they could at least worship it and maybe protect that city from the plague. That's the statue, or at least one like it, that Paul pointed to that day. But he began by giving them a compliment. He said, I see that in every way you are very religious. But then he pivoted and said, the God you don't know, the one you claim to be ignorant of, is the very God that I want to tell you about today. What then is Paul's story? Because he said, the God that I'm going to tell you about is at the center of the story that I have for you. Well, Luke summarizes what Paul said that day this way. He starts in verse 24 by saying, God who made the world and everything in it. Now, the Epicureans had a belief about God, that God was distant and couldn't care less about our lives. The Stoics, on the other hand, had a very different idea about God. They believed that the gods were nearby. In fact, they were in nature, so in rocks and trees and everything else. So who was right? Well, Paul said, basically, you're both wrong. God is not distant. He's nearby. And, by the way, he really cares about our lives. But he is nature's creator. He is separate and distinct from creation, not in it. Yet he's also active in our lives. In verse 25, Paul went on to say, He is not served by human hands. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, you remember that the, the Epicureans, what I just said, they believed the gods couldn't care less about us. They also believed that life was simply like a roll of the dice, that it was all up to chance. And Paul disagreed. He said, no, God sustains life. That means he promises to meet our needs. He is a God who is with us. We are not on our own. We're not subject just to chance. In verse 26, he said, from one man, he created all the nations on earth, deciding beforehand when they should rise and fall and establishing their boundaries. Because the Epicureans believed in chance, they believed that there was no cosmic plan that history had no direction to it. In fact, they believed that this life was all there is. At death, the lights go off. There's nothing on the other side. But the Stoics, on the other hand, disagreed. Their belief in fate made them believe that there was a future, but that our fate is already sealed. There's just simply nothing we can do about it to change it. But Paul had something, a different view, that was both more hopeful and optimistic. First, he said that God guides history. Now, that doesn't mean that God is responsible for every good and evil act that any individual or nation commits, but that the direction of history is under God's control. Secondly, he wanted them to understand that there is something on the other side of death. 
And as we'll see in a moment, that hope, there is hope, that our fate is not sealed. Because the Epicureans believed that this life was all there is, they believed that we should pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And the Stoics believed, since that we're at the, at the whim of fate, there's nothing we can do about it, so just stop whining. The best thing anyone can do is to become self-sufficient and try to live without needing anything from anyone. But Paul disagreed with both groups. Neither a life devoted to pleasure nor a stiff upper lip had the answer. That's because, Paul said in verse 28, we are his offspring. In other words, God's offspring. In him we live and move and have our being. That means that God's made each one of us. He wanted them to understand that. And, he says, he is not far from anyone. He has made us so that we will seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. That is, that God made us with a deep desire to know him. It's then that Paul wraps this all up. He said before that God who made, God made and sustains everything. That God has a plan and he made each one of us. He now says that God will hold us each accountable. Here's what he says in verses 30 and 31. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul tells them, God loves each one of you. That's why he has given us life. But we're flawed people. Bluntly, he tells them, we sin. That's why it's essential that we repent, that we confess our sins and own up to the things that we've done. One day we will be judged for what we've done. But there is hope. While Jesus himself will judge us, he's also made a way for us to have a relationship with God. You see, Jesus lived the life that we've tried to live but failed. He died the death that we deserved and then rose from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death in our lives, making it possible for us to have a relationship with God. Now with that, Paul finished this conversation that he had with these learned PhDs. There was a sense of urgency and love in what he had to say that day, because to him this was not some trivial philosophical argument, but the most important news that they would hear. Jesus, Paul said, meets them at their point of deepest need. So what happened when Paul finished? Well, frankly, he got a mixed response. Some sneered, others asked if they could have further conversation, but a few believed, including a man named Dionysius and a woman named Marius, who became followers of Jesus. So what's the point? Well, to Paul, he believed that everyone, everyone who was far from God would be better off if Jesus Christ, not an idol, were at the center of their lives. He believed that the message he had contained the best, most comprehensive explanation of reality that there was. He had a message that he believed spoke to the longings of the human heart, a message that is logically coherent, emotionally satisfying, and psychologically healthy. So he patiently and persistently shared the good news of, with, of Jesus with anyone who would listen. Each time he did, he did something he would do if he were here with us today, and that is that he extended to everyone the invitation that Jesus offers to us, an invitation into a relationship with God through faith in him. Luke condensed Paul's message on Mars Hill to just a few hundred words. I would love to have heard the unabridged version. But the important parts of the speech have been preserved for us. As challenging as it is, know the heart that was behind what Paul said that day. 
the heart of compassion and love that comes through, that God deeply desires to be in a relationship with us, and that each one of us can have a relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus. Amen.